All right. Um, yeah, as Clint said, we're going to be in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 11 tonight. And so while you guys are turning there, I'll briefly lay out the structure that we're going to go through. I don't really have points, more so just sections. And so these are the three sections. Section one is knowledge, and then we have commandments, and then we have application after that. And so, um, open up here. All right, so 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The, that old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for bringing us together tonight, and thank you for the time of worship that we've already had. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us as we open up your word and humbly seek you um, and the commandments that you've given us. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, um, that your word would be illuminated to us and that you'd be with me as I bring that word. Um, Lord, please bless the rest of our evening tonight as we continue in study and worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's get right into it. In verse 3, um, we're going to start out with our knowledge section. So in verse 3, the by this that we see is if we keep his commandments. So if we change up the, the order of the sentence from verse 3 to make it a little bit more simple, we would see, and if we keep his commandments, we know that we have come to know him. Okay, so we're, we're saying the by this is if we keep his commandments. So is John here merely talking about an intellectual knowledge of Christ. On our first read through, I believe it could appear that way, um, but the repetitive use of the word know should give us pause. John is talking about a knowledge of knowledge. So we need to define what he means by each use of the word know. The way that we normally use the word know is to mean to have an understanding of something. So if we import this meaning to both uses of the word no in verse three, then we get a solely intellectual view. We have an understanding of an understanding of Christ. It doesn't work. The Greek word here for no is gnosko, which is used to mean to perceive or to understand, but it's also employed by the biblical authors to reference an intimate experiential acquaintance with someone or something, not merely an intellectual understanding. In fact, the word is often used as an allusion to a sexual intimacy, like in Luke 1, 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Since I am a virgin could literally be translated to since I know no man. 
With this being said, not every use of the word is alluding to sex. I don't bring this up to be graphic or shocking, um, but just to establish the interpretation that I take with the usage of the word no. So I believe that the second use of the word no in verse three is the intimate experiential knowledge that only comes through a close relationship with someone. And this probably wouldn't be contested by most people. In this context, it's the most logical conclusion. But what might be contested is the interpretation of the first use of the word no that I take. I found what Peter Lightheart had to say on this compelling. Dr. Lightheart posits that the first use of the word no means both to fully experience and to be assured of. So to put it in our own language, he says, we have come to know him means that we have a full experience and an existential assurance of a loving, intimate relationship with God. So let me read that again. It means that we have a full experience and an existential assurance of a loving, intimate relationship with God. And we use the term no in this manner today as well. Um, for example, I never knew the love of a father until we met Naomi. I had a father who loved me with this love. I had friends such as Clint and Ace that I've seen love their children with this love, but I never got it until I experienced it. I think my dad really helped me to understand this the other day. We were chatting on the phone and we'd been on the phone for maybe 20 minutes and Naomi woke up from her nap and she was ready to eat and she was, poor girl, she was just screaming her head off. <laughs> um, she was angry and uh, Steph was getting her ready and getting ready to feed her. And in the midst of all this, you know, my dad's kind of being silent because it's loud. And I look down at Naomi and I just say, man, she's so cute. <laughs> and my dad says something and I couldn't hear, or hear him because she was screaming so loud. And I said, what? And he said, you're in love. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I am. <laughs> he said, uh, nobody looks at somebody that's screaming like that and says, she's so cute unless they're in love. <laughs> And uh, he's right, I'm pretty bad off. And I think you girls in the room know what I'm talking about, that uh, you know you have your dad wrapped around your finger. <laughs> and so um, my point being, my knowledge of the love of a father came through experiencing it. And it was something that I couldn't have gotten any other way. So if we go back and we're using the paraphrase of Dr. Lightheart, the whole verse would read through, and by this we have a full experience and existential understand or assurance of a loving, intimate relationship with God if we keep his commandments. This interpretation is bolstered by the following verses. So starting in verse four, it says, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever keeps his word and him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John's making it painstakingly clear here that those who claim to have a relationship with God while living a life of high-handed disobedience are liars. This is strong language and many of us wouldn't feel comfortable employing this language, um, but it's, the way that the Bible speaks about such people. And we may have friends or loved ones in our lives that are this person that, that John is describing here. And we may not feel comfortable using the word liar to describe them. We might wanna use something that's a little less offensive like nominal Christian or maybe 
baby believer if we are unsure. But should we be comfortable with this? I'm arguing, yes, we should be comfortable with this language because the language of the Bible is authoritative and inspired even when it offends our niceties. Think about this. If you or a loved one is hellbound, living far from God in rebellion, which would be kinder, to smooth it over or to confront it head on with hope of repentance? There's obviously two applications here. One of them is to the person that we're describing who is actually not in Christ, but living a life of rebellion and they are a liar. The other application is for us who are in Christ to take a look at this and evaluate ourselves and see if, if we're not living in line with our profession. It's a challenge to us who are in Christ to put our flesh to death and to walk in line with what we say we are. On a practical note, um, and I didn't plan this because Ace was here. I didn't even know he was going to be here, but story time. Um, being frank about these things can oftentimes be uncomfortable. Um, I could give a big long caveat about removing the log from your eye before you remove the speck from your brother's eye, but I imagine that you guys are acquainted with that. And I don't want to downplay that. Please don't hear me downplaying that. Um, don't be a hypocrite. But instead of camping there, I want to talk about the blessing on being on the receiving end of some speck picking. <laughs> I sin and often publicly. And some of the most influential moments in my walk have been when my brothers, such as Ace, have offered correction to me. One time uh, at Stephanie's birthday party at Friends, uh, we, were, we were hanging out, celebrating Stephanie. We were engaged and um, Stephanie's mom had provided this wonderful chocolate cake from Small Cakes. And it was in the middle of the table and we were all arguing about who was gonna cut the cake because Stephanie was too far. I, I think I was like right in front of the cake. And so I was the obvious candidate. Stephanie asked me to cut the cake. Um, I don't know if you guys know how to cut a cake, but um, apparently I did not. <laughs> I cut it straight down the middle and both sides start to just buckle and crumble and fall off the, the platter. And uh, I started to blame Stephanie because she had asked me to cut the cake. And uh, Ace called me out on this and told me that it was pretty lame in front of everybody. And he was right. Um, was I embarrassed by this? Absolutely. Do I think about this instance almost every time I'm tempted to blame shift or throw my wife under the bus now? Yeah, I do. <laughs> so it was sanctifying and it was needed. Um, there are times to confront the sins of others. And there are also times to cover the sins of others. And it takes wisdom to discern when to do each. My point here is this, if the only tool in our wheelhouse is to cover sins and we never confront, then we are out of touch with the way that the Bible talks about sin. So if your brother is not acting in accordance with his profession, first pray and then consider talking to him. You don't have to follow the example that I gave and call him out in front of a group necessarily, but that's not off the table. Again, use wisdom. So if you're thinking to yourself at this point, man, we're talking a lot about commandments and obedience. Is this teaching a, a works-based salvation? Hang in there with me. It's not, and I'll show you why. The thing that's underlying John's line of logic here in these first few verses, and really the whole passage, is that one cannot obey apart from being regenerated. 
We see this throughout scripture, but it's communicated potently by Paul in Romans chapter six, verse, starting in verse 15. Paul says, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace by no means. Do you know that when you offer yourselves as someone uh, to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. That's good news, amen? amen. So we see that it's not that we work to our salvation, but rather we do good works because we have been saved. In Christ, we have received freedom not freedom to choose to sin, but rather freedom to choose righteousness. Because previously in our flesh, we could not choose righteousness. We were bound to our sin. But now we see uh, if we are in Christ, both in Romans where I just read and in 1 John, we will, if we are in Christ, act rightly. We are slaves to righteousness and slaves obey their master. More than this, we see that our obedience to Jesus's commands is inextricably tied to our relationship with him. There isn't another path to intimacy with Christ. If you're going to follow him, then you will follow him. These things are not able to be separated. As John says in verse six, we will walk in the same way in which he walked. So how did Christ walk? With humility, with meekness, with mercy, with grace, and most importantly, with love. And that love led to a physical death through self-sacrifice. Before we move to the next section here, I wanted to comment on verse five as well. The first part of verse five reads, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the, God, the love of God is perfected. So what does John mean by the love of God? He tells us later in his letter. So if you look over to chapter five, starting in verse two, he says, by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In commentary on this, uh, Dr. Lightheart says, John and Jesus' talk of the law is quite opposed to much of what we find in Christianity, even evangelical and reformed Christianity today. Law and gospel are set against each other. And there is some truth to that in some context, but we don't make ourselves acceptable to God by keeping the law and the Torah as the system of worship and life that governed Israel, uh, and it did not bring salvation. When John talks about what it means to live the Christian life day by day, he describes it in terms of faith, love, and obedience to commandments. Without attention to God's commandments, love threatens to collapse into sentimentality and affirmation. On the other hand, if we keep God's commandments without love, without sincere desire for the good of our brothers, then we are also separating what God has joined together. Law should be infused with and motivated by love. 
love expresses itself in keeping commandments, end quote. I know that we have all seen recently, um, all around us, especially on a college campus, love collapse into sentimentality and affirmation, as Dr. Lightheart says. And some of us have legitimately seen, well, let me go back. Just, I, I'm not gonna stick on this for too long, but what are some examples of that uh, love collapsing into sentimentality and affirmation? I think it's most clearly seen with the uh, issues of abortion and LGBTQ. Um, we see these high-handed rebellions against our God that he clearly defines as sinful, and we see even people within the church that have an impulse to accept these things as good. Um, they call good what God has called evil, um, and that's evil. But we also see the other side of that coin, which is legalism, where law is paramount and love is neglected. And some of us have even come out of some of these environments um, that are legalistic. And so you see progressive Christianity on one side of the road, and you see a legalistic Christianity on the other side of the road, and they're both ditches. They do not save. You likely have an inclination to one of these ditches, or you could have been saved out of one of these ditches and have a tendency to overcorrect into the other one. That's me. <laughs> I was saved out of the progressive one, and I have a, a, a strong pull on the wheel to the legalistic side now, and I have to watch that because I hate what I came from, and I don't want to be there. Um, but the Lord calls us not to one side or the other. What he calls us to is a balanced view. We have to look to Christ. We have to see that Christ in himself is love and the fulfillment of the law. Both ditches are hewn out by humans trying to make their own paths to God and rejecting this balanced path, um, this straight and narrow, if you will. <laughs> um, he's called us to both, not one or the other. He's called us to law and love, okay? And John is showing us here that the way that we express love is by obedience to law, okay? So let's get into that. It's starting in uh, verse seven. We, we're gonna move into our commandments section here. Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So let's start by breaking down verse seven. The commandment that John is giving is not new, but something that we've had from the beginning, the word that we've heard. This is a clear reference to the Old Testament law from Leviticus chapter 19. Starting in verse 17, going to 18, it says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So hold on to that little uh, tidbit for a moment, and let's jump into verse 8. John tells us that this same commandment, the one that he's alluding to Levitical law in, is also new. What does this mean? I believe that this is a reference to John's gospel account where Jesus in 
chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the old commandment is to love your brother and neighbor as yourself. Um, the new commandment is to love each other as Jesus has loved us. And I believe that John's point in saying this is an old commandment, but also it's a new commandment, um, is to draw a connection between these commandments, show us that they are in some ways one and the same, um, make a reiteration of them himself here to his audience. So he's calling them to uh, obey these commandments um, and to make a claim about those who are able to obey them, that, that those people are in Christ. So I'll, I'll get into that in just a moment here. But many people hear the commandment to love neighbor um, and they immediately have this antinomian itch. They have this uh, itch to believe that the commandment to love nullifies the rest of the law. But what does, what does scripture say? Jesus tells us plainly in the Gospel of Matthew, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So if you hear people using passages such as this, passages about love as an excuse to throw off hard passages, um, run. Yeah, Jesus would have you to love, but one must ask themselves, what does that love look like? Let's explore that question. What does love look like by looking at the meaning of verses seven and eight? In verses seven and eight, I think that there's three main things going on, okay? First, John is telling his audience to fulfill the summarized second table of the Decalogue, that is the 10 commandments, toward their brothers. So these, the second table of the law, these are commandments for how you are to love your neighbor. Jesus summarizes this. Um, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 13. He says, uh, starting in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the love, uh, for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So we're still called to obey these commandments from old. And that's what John is, is showing us here, for, firstly. Secondly, he's showing us the connection between these commandments and the new commandment that Christ gave. By saying that the commandment is old and new, he's showing that in reality it's the same one but reiterated. Um, and it's transformed by Jesus's reiteration of it. This transformation adds a new layer of meaning to love your neighbor. Instead of merely loving our brothers as ourselves, we are to follow the real tangible example that Christ gave us of this love in himself. Loving each other as Christ loves us, um, we are to love in a way that we in ourselves are incapable of outside of him. This love is completely selfless and it flips our ideas of how far we're willing to go to love someone on their heads. We naturally in our flesh are going to look at these laws and we're going to say, how can I cheat the system? 
How can I get around this? How can I get out without having any skin in the game? But the question that one with Christ's love will ask is the opposite of our natural inclination. This person asks, how can I fully meet my neighbor's needs? How can I set others above myself? How can I honor God by loving this person? And how can I love them as Christ loved me? He died so that I might live. How can I love them with that kind of love? And thirdly, I believe that John is making a claim about our ability to keep these commandments. Our ability to obey comes through our union with Christ and the support of his Holy Spirit. Verse 8 says, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Which is true in him and in you. Maybe a little bit difficult to understand. Um, one commentator simplifies this by explaining that the new commandment finds its truth and its practical realization in the walk of Christians with in union with Christ. Okay, so the new commandment finds its truth in its practical realization in the walk of Christians and union with Christ. He goes on to explain that the repetitive use of the word in, in him and in you, indicates that the commandment to love finds its realization separately, first in Christ and now in us when we walk in the same way which Christ has walked. But it's also realized conjointly as the phrase is unified in one sentence. This is to show that the only way that this commandment is true in us is by virtue of Christ fulfilling it and now empowering us by his Holy Spirit to obey it. So we see this reality because as John writes, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Christ is the true light and we are those in which the darkness is waning. We'll now move into our last section and start in verse nine with our application here. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John tells us here that the one who claims to be in Christ yet hates his brother, that is the one that he is supposed to have fellowship with in Christ, is no Christian. If you claim to be Christ, in Christ and you hate Christians, you are not a Christian. Different views are adopted here on what John means by the word brother. Some would say that the term would extend to all humanity as we all come from one father, that is Adam. I believe that the term brother means fellow Christian. One commentator writes, in St. John's writings, where brother does not mean an actual relationship, it seems generally, if not universally, to mean Christians. Not that the members of the human race are excluded, but that they are not under consideration. So we see here that hate is correlated to darkness, as love is to light. And the light is Christ. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause 
for stumbling. What we read here is the working out of a positivized command that contrasts the prohibitive commands. Instead of don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't murder, don't covet, which could be summarized as don't hate. What we see here is a command that gives us an action, do love. Now, to be clear, I'm not pitting these two things against each other in the sense that many people do. I think the way that we love each other is at least by not wronging each other, by hating each other uh, through committing adultery or murder or stealing or coveting. But we see a different side of things when we're told not just what the law prohibits, but what it requires. We can love by not committing offense, but we can also love by promoting well-being. So for some time, we've been teaching through uh, Keech's Catechism or the Baptist Catechism um, with uh, Perimeter uh, College and Young Adults. Uh, we've been doing it in D groups, and previously we were doing it in community groups as well. Um, one of the things that stuck out to me from Keech's Catechism was the way that it exposits the Ten Commandments. The format goes like this. What is the first commandment? What is required in the first commandment? And what is forbidden in the first commandment? Now, with some of the commandments, it's really easy to see what is required, such as commandment five, honor thy mother and father, uh, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. It's pretty clear what, what it's asking us to do there. Um, where it starts to get a little bit trickier is when the commandment is presented as a prohibitive um, commandment. It's to prohibit an action. The natural question is, haven't I obeyed the commandment not to murder if I don't murder? It's a fair question, but not fully. This is where the requirement catechism questions shine. The catechism tells us that in addition to not murdering, the Sixth Commandment also requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the lives of others. In addition to not committing adultery, the Seventh Commandment requires the uh, preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. In addition to not stealing, the Eighth Commandment requires the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward state of ourselves and others. In addition to not bearing false witness, uh, the Ninth Commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man and our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing. And finally, in addition to not coveting, the Tenth Commandment requires the full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit towards our neighbor and all that is his. So why do I bring this up? I bring this up because it's relevant to us. As I mentioned earlier, we have an antinomian streak in the American Evangelical Church. And we're not really acquainted well with the law at all. Um, by and large, uh, when we read this text, we, we really need to see the context of, of what the laws are requiring of us um, that John is speaking about. And John is calling obedience to these laws in this passage. But more than this, more than all the prohibitions and requirements of the law, we also have a new commandment in which we see that through Christ's example, we must love others despite their failings to the point of self-sacrificial death. Christ is the sure fulfillment of this law 
And with this love, the love that leads to death, we are to love one another. So then my question to you in light of these verses is not whether or not you appear to be keeping the law or whether you're a nice guy. My question is, do you love your brother? Have you experienced the peace and the joy of Christ by participating in this love that is keeping his commandments? Or when you look around, do you see darkness? Is your vision clouded by hatred, anger, envy, deceit, and malice? When your brother sees victory, do you feel threatened? When your brother is down, are you glad? Does unrighteousness seem right in your eyes? 1 John 4, 7 through 11 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So here's my point in bringing all this up. You can't bear the fruit of a Christian if you're not attached to the vine. And if that's the case, if you're not abiding in Christ, you ought to take this opportunity to be frank about the state of your soul. You will not be able to go before the throne of God and plead a case of relative righteousness. That is, I was better than the last guy. That doesn't work in God's court. God has a standard of perfection, but luckily he sent his son to meet that. And in his son, if you would call on him, God's wrath against you and your sin have been satisfied. So as we're coming to a close, I want to draw us back into the main point of this text, which is that we are supposed to love and obey the commandments of the law of God. And the lens through which we see these laws is the life of Christ. Christ modeled perfectly and showed us the way that we are to walk this obedience out. Paul's charge in Philippians 2 verses 4 through 8 sums this up really well. Paul says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Christian, here's my charge to you. Has your brother stopped acting like a brother? Has he abandoned you? Are you tempted to categorize him as somebody other than your brother so that you can slip through an apparent loophole and not have to love him with this love? Love him anyway. This passage is not asking you to do an easy thing. It's demanding 
that if you would identify with our Lord, that you would die with him. Love for your brother necessitates death to self. Your flesh is a tyrannical God that takes and takes and takes. But Christ-like love gives when nothing is promised in return. Christian, you received this love freely and the command here is for you to give it in the same manner. The command to love requires sacrifice, yes, but it is the only path to what you actually long for, which is fellowship with God and with your brothers. So go and die. Kill every inkling of sinful desire that would stir up hatred and anger and malice and envy and deceit and communicate the truth of the gospel with your life. The light has come and the darkness is passing away. Is this true in you? But be encouraged. Your fleshly inability to obey is negated by the power of God in you. You have been set free from hatred of your brother and set free to love him. Or is this not you? Are you the liar who claims to follow Christ but doesn't keep his commandments and hates those who are supposed to be his brothers? Look to Christ. Step out of the darkness that has blinded you and turn to Christ. He will sustain you and give you his spirit to free you to obey him with his love. Or you may not be in Christ at all. And you may be thinking to yourself, I've never experienced this type of love that they're talking about. Love that would free me from my sin and free me to obey the laws that I know are righteous. Do you desire this love? Look to Christ. He will embrace you in his arms. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your word calls us to obedience. Thank you for sending your son to walk in such a way as to satisfy the requirements of the law and, our, and die for our breaking of it. Thank you that he now reigns and will forevermore reign. Thank you for your spirit who dwells in us and enables us to walk in the way which your son did. Draw us closer to yourself and help us to love our brothers as Christ has loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.